Hey guys, good evening. Welcome back to Revving Up History. This is Revolta uh, here with a new episode on kind of urban society in the late 1800s. Again, things like, uh, you know, uh, big increases in immigration, kind of the situation in life in the cities, right, uh, during the late 1800s, uh, and kind of a new kind of politics arising in the cities as well during that time period. All right, guys, let's go ahead and begin. So the opening of the chapter looks at, uh, you know, just the big changes that are going on, and that is... You know, if you go back to mid-1800s, right, uh, most people still living kind of in the eastern portion of the country. And even at the beginning of the Civil War, something like one in six uh, American people still living in mostly rural communities, right, small towns, things like that. But one thing we see that uh, can totally change now in the late 1800s and by 1900 is, uh, again, about one-third begin to live of in communities that are can be kind of considered small towns or small cities. And then 1920 is kind of the big date in American history where we go from being kind of rural country, right, to uh, having most of our population live in what we call urban environments or urban centers. Uh, good. All right, guys, so early on, the focus is kind of on architecture and the kind of changing look and feel of the city. Um, so and the key good there is the kind of proliferation of steel, right, used to build a massive railroad network throughout the country. And then also, you know, new challenging kind of architecture techniques that are coming along to use steel to build structures that are taller than ever. And then again, the big transition back then was in most buildings, uh, their weight was, you know, uh, bore by the kind of exterior of the building, right? The walls itself. Uh, these new skyscrapers will have kind of, you know, massive columns that run their length, right? And this really is kind of the sky's the limit as far as you wanted to build them, as far up as you wanted to build them anyway. So we get people like Louis uh, Sullivan and Root, and of course later on Frank Lloyd Wright, will be instrumental in building those skyscrapers. And again, Chicago will be the kind of the birthplace of that, but then they'll be all over the country, especially New York, Philadelphia, Boston, those places. Uh, very good. All right, guys, uh, also uh, kind of later, or that later in that little section, they focus on uh, the changing dynamic of the rise of the suburbs, especially because of the mass transit system with the cable car system in those bigger cities. And again, reasons being, right, people kind of wanting to get away from the overcrowdedness, sometimes the crime of inner cities, even sometimes also the immigrants as well, and wanting to move to suburbs where they could lead a more kind of quiet residential life. And again, you still see that in modern day, right, outside places like Houston and, uh, you know, bigger towns and so forth. All right, guys, uh, the kind of next section uh, switches gears to talk about uh, the issue of tenements and the problems kind of with the city and the overcrowding. So tenements are basically really low-income apartment um, complexes that uh, dominated, you know, places like New York and such. And in some cases, right, you have small apartments that are, you know, not much bigger than 300 square feet or so. And they're kind of meant for one family, but sometimes they're, you know, being boarded by, you know, upwards of 10 people, 15 people, right? So the way that would usually happen is you have kind of a poor immigrant family there kind of holding it down, but then they take on boarders, they take on family members or friends of family members that need a place to stay and are willing to at least pay some rent sort of and uh, you know everybody kind of chips in to afford that location but again not very great conditions right things like restrooms all that stuff kind of at a premium and conditions take a long time to kind of improve so uh, again a very rough environment for children for I mean everybody uh, during that time uh, good uh, all right, guys, uh, some other things we have kind of uh, in upticks in alcoholism, upticks in uh, crime and stuff like that, you know, like complaints about the, a lot of the young people and stuff like that. 
uh, looking to rob and uh, you know, take advantage of people sometimes. So again, just, you know, basically the problems you think of with a modern city and overcrowding, kind of that worst view of it. Um, you know, at that time was kind of like when this view kind of arises. I guess from there they move on to discuss uh, people, uh, new immigrants into uh, the country. And this really kind of kicks off in 1880 and goes on through the early 1900s. And we call this group the New Immigrants. And the reason they're called New Immigrants is, if you remember a little bit about our uh, American history course, right, we've talked about a lot of Western European immigration, right, German, Scottish, uh, Irish, uh, groups like that. But uh, what we see during this time is now a massive kind of spike in people from South, Southern and Eastern Europe. An example being Italians and Greeks, Russian Jews, uh, you know, Poles, uh, people like that. And again, re- coming over for a lot of those same reasons, right? Economic opportunity. In the case of Italy, they had some uh, epidemics that broke out as well that pushed people away. But these people are going to make up the mass, a massive amount of population in places like New York and Chicago where those foreign-born people are going to make up, in some cases, you know, half the population. In some cases, uh, you know, maybe even a little bit more than that. So again, very, very important to acknowledge those new groups. Uh, some other things, kind of, uh, the adjustment for these immigrants in the cities, right, was very, one that was very, very tough. A lot of times Americans were pretty hostile to them. You know, usually finding work, maybe not that big of an issue, although it would be a very low-paying job initially. But a lot of times, uh, as we talk about in class, these groups kind of looked out for each other, right? People within that nationality, within those neighborhoods, those ethnic neighborhoods that arise, uh, tend to try to kind of watch out for each other, whether it be, you know, providing shelter, food, those things. They also rely on church, right? If you're Italian, Catholic church, uh, again, if you're Greek or Russian, uh, the Orthodox church for assistance when they need it. Uh, some help will also come from a different source, right? One that is... Uh, known as political machines, right? And in class, we talked a little bit about uh, the kind of house that Tweed built, right? William Tweed being the kind of prototypical or the best example of one of these party bosses and these leaders of these political machines in the late 1800s for New York. And again, these are basically, you know, sort of party bosses that dominate regional politics and hold on to those positions for a long time. And again, a lot of times they were stealing money, uh, right? A lot of bribery, a lot of corruption going on. But uh, they had a kind of symbiotic relationship with the immigrants because they needed the immigrants to fill out, uh, to vote for them and keep them in power. Sometimes, you know, changing or switching different positions. But uh, in return for the, you know, for those votes, right, they provided services for those immigrants who, uh, you know, needed it many times. All right, guys, uh, in the middle of the uh, chapter, we kind of look at some of the social and cultural changes uh, going on in that uh, you know, things like the population going up, right? WASPs, right? Those white Anglo-Saxon Protestants are kind of the dominant force in American society, tend to be better educated, tend to uh, have better conditions overall, have the better jobs and so forth. Um, they talk uh, again about things like, you know, changes in science going on, better medicine, especially when dealing with pain and things like that. Uh, things like pasteurization coming about. Um, and from there, it moves on to kind of more of the cultural stuff, dealing with you know, how rigid that Victorian, that mora- morality kind of and fashion was, right? And I think I showed you the picture of the young lady dressed very conservatively. Kids basically dressed like many adults. Uh, you know, prototypical kind of gentleman would be, you know, dark suit, right? Derby hat. So again, uh, just a very kind of rigid time when it came to some of these things. Uh, again, society not quite ready to push the envelope regarding things like sexuality and other things. Still a little bit too early for that. 
Alright guys, we also see some of the early kind of religious movements morph or affect uh, some of the societal issues. So the Mugwumps are an early example of that. So, you know, whereas before, you know, uh, abolition of slavery, things like that were big. Now that's switching to, I mean, those are still issues, absolutely, but you know, certain groups will target other things. Things like uh, the Mugwumps and their targeting of corruption in politics. So, you know, these are media members who tried to kind of shed light on some of the ugly things going on in cities, especially in regards to politics. And you have the role of very uh, you know, powerful and dedicated women uh, in the WCTU, right? The Women's Christian Temperance Union, um, you know, which by or a little bit before 1900 uh, has uh, half a million members all over the country. And again, that's going to be very key later on to getting prohibition passed, right? And making alcohol legal in this country for a time period. So and you see some of the kind of origins of what will later on become the progressive movement and social work, and social justice but this is kind of just the beginning of it all right guys other things we see is a section on kind of entertainment what people did with their time off um so you know especially for a middle class family you start to think of almost kind of we have in current day right the modern family where you know people wake up in the morning and then people especially in the urban household go their separate ways right Um, dad goes to his profession mom if she doesn't work is kind of daily uh, going to market gathering things for the family children go to their school right Average kiddo back then about five years of school. And, uh, you know, from there in their free time, right, enjoyed parlor games and stuff. So things like dominoes, cards, uh, chess and checkers, backgammon, things like that. Uh, you know, you have New York's Broadway. That's uh, kind of the core of theater, right, in this country. And then you had other kind of productions in other cities and towns. You had, uh, you know, kind of a music emerging like ragtime and um uh, a sort of par- parlor music that arises in the late 1890s uh, all over the country. You had things like the circus and uh, Wild West shows that are traveling the country, providing people glimpses of a different life. And then you had the rise of what we call well, first recreational sports, right? People getting more interested in things like golf and tennis. And then what we call spectator sports uh, with uh, things like, you know, our pastime, right? And baseball and college football getting immensely popular. And by the time you fast forward a couple of decades... Uh, you know, tens of thousands of people are going to some of these big games, right? Some of these big rivalries. And baseball is, um, by that time, already cemented itself as kind of our pastime and our favorite sport. Uh, some of the things we see going on in industrialization and urbanization is uh, the kind of effect that uh, uh, on family life of this urban area, right? Kind of splitting up lives. People tend to be a little bit more distant. Families are, uh, are kind of isolated from the world of work of the male, and so it creates kind of an interesting dynamic and, you know, leads to things like upticks in divorce and stuff like that. Um, and also lowering of uh, fertility rates, right? Birth rates in general dropping because people tended to work more or, and women tended to work more into their uh, 20s or even 30s. And, uh, you know, it brought on some uh, interesting changes to the family, the American family, as we think about it. We also see women uh, doing a lot of good in that uh, taking... Um, you know, taking a certain rights that hadn't been bestowed to them. So some of those involve things like property, you know, whereas before you almost had to get sort of something like a prenup or a pre-marriage agreement to retain your property, retain things in your name. Those laws are slowly kind of going away at the local level and the state level to where women can, can retain their, uh, you know, their property and uh, think inheritances, even uh, if a marriage fails and so forth, or even during a marriage. Um, Moving on to the next section, kind of on education, uh, we see, you know, the idea of kind of identifying childhood is kind of a, an important time for a child to develop and grow 
and you know we see this in uh, the expansion of public schools and uh, you know things like declining illiteracy rates and so forth. Now keep in mind, even though you know today we average many years of school, right, upwards of ten. Back then it would have been somewhere around five. Boys tended to go longer, more years than girls. Uh, again, those are some of the kind of the key things. Things were very rigid and very stern as far as the curriculum. Not a whole lot of creative creativity and things like that. And then you have differences within the country itself, right? North, uh, way ahead of the South in regards to infrastructure, things like that. And of course, you have segregation and all that going on in the South as well. Uh, higher education, also really important. I'm sorry, I forgot to mention one thing. A kindergarten, a key development that is born out of St. Louis in the 1870s, adopted. You know, the name itself is German, but adopted. And that's a key kind of thing in kindergarten, if you think about it. Because, you know, the idea was to uh, get kids younger and to organize schooling and to kind of get them to learn through play and set them up hopefully for better success later on with education. So pretty uh, important. And we also see universities and colleges around the country have education as a curriculum and as a major degree, as a degree basically. So, you know, that's how we know it's kind of gaining importance during that time. All right, guys, in higher ed, just kind of get through this pretty quick. Again, because of the Moral Land Grant Act, we talked about last chapter, right, but also prevalent here, 1862. Uh, again, many, many colleges founded around the country. And then you have the, you know, things that are done like by Carnegie, by Rockefeller, by people like Stanford, Leland Stanford, found Stanford University. You know, there's a big proliferation of educational institutions in the country. Now, keep in mind, although uh, these colleges are being built and all that, still really no low numbers even got to go to college. I think under 5% during the late 1800s or around the 1890s or so. So not too many people can afford it. And not too many people end up going. But there are some good things going on with things like curriculum. Uh, an example would be uh, John uh, Hopkins University kind of premiering in 1876, uh, their first advanced studies or what we would think of as like graduate studies, like master's degree and advanced degrees. Later on, other institutions will copy that method. Um, other things kind of going on, many more private colleges open up, women's colleges, colleges uh, for African-Americans, for instance, things like that. So. Uh, higher education really kind of changing the way uh, things are done. Uh, this last part of the chapter focuses on a few things. Um, two uh, very, very important individuals for kind of African-American civil rights. And that is W.E.B. Du Bois and, or Du Bois and uh, Booker T. Washington. So two fascinating individuals. We'll talk to them, about them a bit more in class. But two uh, gentlemen who are both champions of kind of African-American rights, but have very different approaches for how to solve those problems. And just to put it in a nutshell, you know, for Dubois, he uh, wanted segregation, discrimination to end as soon as it could and was very active about trying to end that as fast as possible. For Booker T. Washington, uh, kind of wanted a more gradualist approach, right? The idea that this is nothing that's going to be given overnight. It's going to take years to change, but, you know, sort of a little bit more inward of what can African-Americans do to change things. And in his mind, it was get educated, get practical training, get better jobs, and kind of start the ball rolling in the other direction. So again, two uh, very important figures, but two very different ideas of what African-Americans and the approach that we should, should be taking to solve some of those issues. Uh, very good. All right, guys, the next part of the book focuses on things going on with kind of uh, social reform and views on society in general. Uh, there's a concept called social Darwinism that becomes pretty popular during this time. So based on, of course, Darwin and his theory with um, natural selection and so forth. But these are kind of adapted in England by a guy named Herbert Spencer to reflect society. And so basically what you have in Herbert Spencer's writing is basically kind of the explanation of even within society, this natural selection process, right? 
Um, example would be Carnegie and Rockefeller were ultra rich because they were educated, they adapted well, they were problem solvers, they got that done, right? These new immigrants that are coming into the country very poor are not, right? They're not fit, they're not, um, you know, adapting fast enough. So that's why they suffer. So a little bit of a kind of, uh, you know, a tough way to look at things, but many people kind of bought into that. Um, you also have the development later on of a, what we call the social gospel. Uh, these are, again, basically... Uh, Christians who are beginning to kind of question some of the issues going on with society and believe that you need to make your city, your region a better place. And in some cases that could be, you know, battling things like alcoholism, uh, the temperance movement, right? Or battling things like child labor. And this is going to kind of wake a lot of people up to kind of start uh, helping out the communities and trying to end some of these ugly things going on within the cities. So a good example of this that kind of ends the chapter is the settlement house movement which kind of takes place beginning in the mid-1880s and then goes all the way through the early 1900s. But basically, settlement houses are these sort of, imagine like a homeless shelter slash school in bigger cities. Uh, most famous one is a place called Whole House in Chicago, established in 1889 by a lady named Jane Adams. And these are usually founded by white Americans who were well-educated and, again, basically wanted to assist these uh, immigrants in adapting to American life. And sometimes that could be taking classes in English in the evenings, having a place to stay, even taking classes to learn a job skill, maybe a little bit of carpentry and stuff like that. But um, again, you know, this is the first time, and again, it's middle-class Americans, well-educated Americans that are taking this upon themselves to try to fix uh, some of these issues. And they'll be pretty popular all around the country in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, I think that covers most of the stuff that'll be pertinent, and of course for the test next Monday. Uh, hope you learned something uh, and thank you guys so much for being patient I know this episode ran a bit long uh, have a great night, talk to you later